Coming up next on Magical Medical Tour with my co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and special guests, Dr. David Tresmer and Leela Tresmer, on slow counseling, emphasizing the healing power of relationships. What is slow counseling and its benefits? How does this affect our relationships? Finding balance between mindfulness and heartfulness. Come join us for all this and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings, uh, Christina, and <laughs> greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Woolman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Exploring Ways Towards Optimal Health. Today is episode 156, Slow Counseling and Healing Relationships. We're going to be speaking with Dr. David Tresemer. Uh, if you remember him, he was in episode 126, The Counselor, and I recommend highly that all of you go back and watch that and listen to it. He's a Harvard-trained psychologist, an author, and the current president of the Association of Anthroposophic psychology, and Leela Tresmer, who is a group facilitator, photographer, author, trans-denominational minister. We will discuss their newest book, Slow Counseling, and we'll talk about some of the chapters that went in it. We'll talk about counseling and healing. But before we get to meet our guests, Christina, how does everyone get in touch with us? Thank you, Glenn. Now, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, if you're listening to this on a podcast or any other device, um, feel free to give us a call and leave us a message at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so much, Glenn. Beautiful. So I would like to, without further ado, introduce my very... Uh, Honorable guests, I, we're honored to have you with us. It's, a, it's truly a pleasure to have you here, and we look forward to meeting with you, Dr. David Tresemer and Leela Tresemer. Welcome, mm -hmm. folks. <laughs> thank you. Hello, Glenn. Thank you. Hello, David. Thank you, Christina. Hello, Leela. Thank you. Thank Hello. you so much for sharing your expertise with our global community. We're very, very excited on this topic. Relationships. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. us too. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll find out about all of our relationships here. The first thing I want to ask, though, is, <laughs> is, is there a... We're talking to you from Tasmania right now, and that has such a great name to it. it for me, it invokes the primitive, it's nature, it's historical, it's remote. Is there, a, is there a Tasmanian greeting that people say to each other on the street? 
Good day. Oh, hello, mate, comes to mind. Yeah, good day and hello, mate. <laughs> okay, excellent. They're very free, very free with the word mate down here. It can be a bit disconcerting sometimes to Americans to have everyone call you mate. <laughs> yeah, it means that the mating ritual here is with everybody. And this is a great training ground for relationships because you learn how to interact with nature and the weather far more it's the weather is serious the trees are serious the little hopping kangaroos it's very serious you have to enter into a relationship with them they won't let you avoid that (laughs) that's amazing Uh, you're you're on a remote island aren't you off of of australia i mean that's well it's actually between it's a little island between mainland Australia, Melbourne, and Tasmania, which is a separate state, and a much larger island. We're on a little pinprick island, about the same size as Kauai, with about 700 people on it, called Flinders Island. Oh, nice. Nice. So I want to, there, there's so much to talk about today. Leela, we're going to talk to you in a little while, get to know you a little more, but we already know David, but... Uh, David, you're the current president of the Association of Anthroposophic Psychology. And you did very well to pronounce it correctly. It takes some people years to learn how to do that. But it it, it relates to the combination of anthropos and Sophia. So anthropos, which is the possible human being, the, 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 the notion of humanity as a whole, a single being in which we all participate. So Anthropos, and then Sophia, the goddess, the wisdom, the the land on which we walk, the air that we breathe. So this living being, you know, they just discovered there might be some more planets, the Earth size, only 40 light years away, which at present speeds, maximum speeds, it'll only take us 800,000 years to get there. So, you know, this is a special privilege to be here uh, with Sophia. So Anthropos, Sophia, Anthroposophy. I'm just congratulating you on pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I appreciate it, and I'm hoping that I can... I'm probably going to say it many more times today, so I'm hoping that I keep getting it right. But my question is, we spoke to you in, in 2015, was our, was our interview with you at that time. So what I want to know, just for a moment, is there any sea change in, in the anthroposophic uh, psychological world, or is, are things status? Since uh, it's spoke. actually, yeah, actually the World Health Organization contacted the, the people at the center of the international organization in Switzerland and said, we're really interested in this. So there's this flurry of activity in anthroposophic psychology to uh, present to the World Health Organization exactly what it is that we do. In the U.S., we have trainings. We're just finishing up one in California and are nearly finished with one in New York. Going to have another training starting in April of 2018 in Pennsylvania, as well as in Wisconsin. Three-year training, three-year trainings, nine seminars, three seminars a year. And there's a lot of interest in finding a, a psychology that understands soul and spirit. Brings back soul and spirit. Perfect. And that leads me into the next part right now. You know, uh, you know I was in emergency medicine, so I would, I would have the police bring in uh, 
a 20-something-year-old person who has a history of manic depression, has stopped his medications and decided to medicate uh, with street drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, and a few other things. Uh, he's been off his meds for about two weeks, and he comes in totally psychotic and hallucinating. I have no time for slow counseling at that point. What is slow counseling about, and who, uh, who can benefit from this? Well, uh, who can benefit, including that person who was just brought in to you, and I'll explain why. Excellent. In slow counseling, we understand, we understand that the current pressure to reduce your number of uh, sessions with a client to from six now to three and to get on the drugs faster is... Um, seems to be effective at the moment. And the studies show that, yes, it can be very effective for many, not all, but many people for two weeks, four weeks. But then it actually, the long-term prognosis is actually worse than if you didn't go on the, psycho the antipsychotics. And they have their place. What also has a place is to understand what is the through line of that particular individual in the relation to soul and spirit. And that's more interesting to us because that involves relationship. Right. And relationship is the most important thing that actually can happen with a counselor. You know, often you see these people in the ER and they will also be uh, recommended for counseling of some kind. There's often a, a, a psychologist on staff or close by with all ER settings who will actually begin the process of dealing with, well, what happens on Monday with this person? And uh, you may, as an ER doctor, have to do a very specific and um, uh, acute intervention, but there is the, the, is the question, okay, where's this going? Where is this going? Where did it come from, of course, but right. where is this going right. for this individual and all the people whom, who, who are affected by this individual's behavior? Moving forward and in the past, leaving the wake. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. So in our current setting, I mean, your, your, your job as an ER doctor is really important. I mean, in that particular juncture, that sharp, acute juncture in this person's life and the people around this person. Mm -hmm. And how do, we, how do we then take them? Do we just send them out of the, uh, do we send them from the ER Maybe they go up to the psychologist who's typically overworked, has 15 minutes for this person, ends up with a prescription, ends up being referred to a psychiatrist, has a prescription for a jar of pills, and says goodbye. You see, that actually doesn't that actually doesn't deal with the impacts that that person has on everybody else around them in the society. We need to actually understand, and other other cultures understand these things. European cultures are very good about this, um, how, to, how to deal with people who, are, who are, have needs of any kind. And therefore, the idea of slow counseling, which relates to slow food and relates to these, this slow movement in many respects, how do we actually savor the taste of soul in relationship to the world? And that, 
this seems to come up at the same time that uh, a lot of mindfulness is a, is a new buzzword that a lot of people are talking about. Many people have been doing it for many years, clearly. But suddenly I'm seeing that mindfulness is being brought into uh, the public schools and elementary schools where they're teaching that. So I would think that when you're talking about uh, the counseling, it's all about relationships. And relationships are clearly not just with the psychologist or the healer and the patient, but it's also a, a policeman and a, a person walking across the street and uh, a grocer yeah. and a, everyone, right? So yes. it's, about, it's yes. about slowing down on every level and appreciating more of the moment. Yeah, we are so many, uh, many of our relationships have a counseling component. Mm -hmm. Even when we model behavior, we are counseling those who are observing us. And certainly we're counseling friends and family and students. And if you're a marriage counselor or a policeman or a lawyer, as you said, there, there are counseling aspects in all of those professions. And none of it is as fast or instant as we may desire if we're feeling pain or difficulty. It relates to, and mindfulness is a good pre-training for the ability to have a relationship by beginning with a relationship with yourself. Right. Right. Uh, I want to ask you a question about the relationship between a counselor and uh, a client or patient. You talk about um, if... If you have that 15 minutes, you don't develop the sensitivities necessary that if you really expand it and take a longer time to look for nuances, body language, uh, speech patterns, things like that. You talk about the sensitivities that could be missed by moving slowly. What are some of those sensitivities? And give me an example of how it would benefit someone. When you're moving at shock speed or emergency speed or acute speed, uh, you miss the slow-growing cloud of human warmth that naturally comes from the heart. And you'll find that uh, professionals, uh, policemen, doctors, nurses, complain about exactly this. They don't have enough time to, uh, to connect with the person. And from the nurse's point of view, that's painful because... If they spend their entire day at shock speed, just going from one to another, one to another, then they their heart doesn't actually get the warmth that is normally flows between people, and it goes a little bit slower than shock speed. And so, within the sensitivities of the of the counselor, what are you developing that that's going to help the the patient in need? that you have time because are, you're going slowly. Yeah, there are aspects that arise naturally in every human being, and there are aspects that do need training, some obvious things. Communica communication skills, which should be taught <laughs> in schools, but it's they don't seem to be taught in schools. And communication skills are the ability to understand what am I feeling and thinking, which many people have a hard time with, and how do I communicate that and listen, listen, which is very difficult for people, many people, how do I communicate and listen with another? That's where the slowness comes in, and if you've dealt 
you know, perhaps you've dealt with several lawyers in your life. I've de- certainly dealt mm-hmm. with many lawyers. Some have those skills and some don't. Mm-hmm. Same with teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, p- uh, police, what do we call them? Police professionals. There's a word for this. Um, law enforcement. <laughs> some Law enforcement, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, so everybody could needs to be able to develop these skills. Most relationship problems, when people come to Leela and myself for advice of some kind or another, a great deal of it has to do with communication skill deficits. This can be learned. Yeah, uh, it's always a big question for me is why we don't teach that. I want to ask you one more question. I want to bring Leela into this. Uh, why, why this book? And what? give us a little bit of the history of why, instead of you just choosing to write a book on slow counseling, you chose a number of people. How were they chosen? And why Leela? Wait a minute. That last one was you, you. That was a series of five questions of which the bomb was the last one. Exactly. Why, That's going to be the segue to get people into this. Uh, I, I was, Why, Lila? If it see, that's because I that's because I spoke slowly and you got it. If I would have spoken at rapid speed, you would have just blown past it and maybe answered it. But you got me. <laughs> Why Leela? Because she's the most beautiful, brilliant human being, and she's my partner, and we learn from each other so much through the vehicle of love, this heart, this heart, this natural heart energy that moves and moves between us, moves in this flowing, wave-like fashion, and that is the best way to learn about relationships. You know, I decided I don't want to hear your other answers. I want to get right to Leela. <laughs> So, Leela, welcome, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, David. You're very dear. Um, I uh, I love that little exchange back there in um, around mindfulness and slow counseling and emergency rooms. I mean, it brings up so many images. And just uh, one thought for me is mindfulness needs to be balanced by heartfulness and that the listening as David's talking about being able to listen has everything to do with do what's the organ of perception is it really only our ears that are listening and interpreting sound waves or is it the capacity of the heart to actually take in more information you know where is the empathy what what else is going on and is that facility actually a a time factor or is it simply opening it up like I don't think it takes any more time to be awake in the heart even in an emergency room situation well said. Uh, and I love the fact that you brought that up. Whenever I hear about mindfulness, you never hear of that other part of heartfulness. And I think that they should just come together as part of the whole process. And I guess, you know, people that talk about mindfulness would bring that into it anyway at some point. But I think it's great that you brought that up. So I have, I have a question for you. Uh, your Part of your name is Sophia the process that you're both involved in has to do with Sophia and the the feminine creator, correct? Huh. Correct. So here's a question. As 
when I've grown <laughs> up, all I've heard about was the masculine creator, right? For a yep. long time. I mean, there were feminine aspects along history, but it was always a masculine creator. And now the concept of a feminine creator uh, comes into the communication and the, and the dialogue. So a question I have, if there is a masculine creator and a feminine creator, what is their relationship to each other? <laughs> you, you don't stick with simple questions, Glenn. I love that about you. Um, <laughs> I would like to believe and to model that their relationship to one another lives through me, and that's really the only relevant inquiry. How can I enact what I would believe and feel to be my capacity to become a connection, a vessel for that creative essence, so that in my relationship, both to myself, to my partner, and to the world, that I remember what's mine to know about that question so that I don't get too esoteric and too far out and irrelevant. And yet, to me, the modeling of that divine relationship is something that I, I want to be aware of literally with every breath. So it's a little, um, you know, it's like answering a, a universal, why are we here, what's the meaning of life, by bringing it back down to what do I actually have a capacity to have a conversation with to make that a relevant question? I do think it's a very relevant question because we're, we're in a very patriarchal and more dominant cycle of history. Prior to this cycle, let's say 5,000 years ago, there was a lot of understanding of the feminine creatrix. Um, certainly indigenous cultures understood that. Many of the pantheons of uh, other traditions, whether it came out of Sum Sumeria and even in Egypt, there was an understanding that there was much more of a balance between masculine, feminine deity. So we've really been limited by the cycle of time and recorded history, which is really not that great when one steps back and looks at many, many, many more years of the creator uh, influence on the planet. So I, I think we're a little stuck in the little slice of history that we seem to think of as all that is known. Yeah, and I, I think I always hear in a lot of things where they always say, yeah, it's his story. That's history, right? Mm. Uh, right, right. So right. in the... Go ahead. Well, David and I have been, you know, spending a fair amount of time with some of the Gnostic texts, which which give a slightly different perspective even to the early part of the millennia, you know, when some of the Gnostic texts were written similarly to the writing of the, the Gospels as we know them in the New Testament, that there were other texts that actually reference much more the Sophia Christos story. And it's one of the reasons that I like pursuing that lineage is because it, it does bring it back to an origin point, you know, within the cycle of the last 5,000 years when Western esoteric tradition actually understood that there was an influence of Sophia in the creative exploration of this planet. 
And it was a mythology that, that for me gives, I'm not saying it is the truth, but it was a look into an explanation of the origin of the worlds and of consciousness that they gave me a sense of belonging in it rather than there's a father God and you know it all came through as it is written only in one biblical text. There actually were more texts than just the one that we've come to acknowledge. And they had similar origin points, which is interesting. But one of them became dominant. Do you think that um, all women have that sensation? And it doesn't mean necessarily 100%, but do they all have that part that comes in as, you know, because of the masculine creator or creatrix, as you say, the uh, that they already have to look at it differently than they would if they were brought into it in the way you're talking about. Do I think all women have that capacity? I think that basically all humans have that capacity when they stop needing to reinforce the superiority of the male. Um, and the right. distinction between the male and masculine um, is an important distinction. I use male and female really talking about the biology and the incarnation into gender. But masculine and feminine are really principles of creativity, and there really isn't much in existence that could exist if it weren't for the balance of masculine feminine influence even down to the biology you know birth requires two and i don't know i mean for me the the distinction is when when one can comprehend the the sense of the ineffable one the origin the source point uh that that that's what's been given gender as masculine, when in fact the ineffable one is neither masculine or feminine. It's both, it's all, it's everything. But to mistakenly assign it gender can't happen until the one becomes two, and the two become many. And then we have a lot of diversification. But the ineffable one is not gender, gender-based. No, I would think not. Christina, do you have any thoughts? I'm, I think I'm flying around the universe right now. <laughs> as, as Leela is talking, my brain is going, whoa. <laughs> Hold on. Leela, uh, I want to stay on relationships and your uh, chapter of the book, and I love the way you have it lined up as relation shipwrecks. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought that was great. And so part of it is the princess uh, marries Prince Charming and they live happily ever after. That's about that's what relationships are, right? <laughs> well, Disney wanted us to believe that, didn't they? I mean, I we've did. all been programmed with <laughs> I did. We got programmed I was waiting with for fairy that tales. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and the you know, we're we're all fed certain images of the royal families, and and now there's all this coming back on you know various, oh I don't know, from Downton Abbey to who knows what <laughs> other series that are you know kind of romanticizing the royalty, and and I, so I think that that's in that's in you know the prince and princess. It's 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 like 
what what is that as the archetype that we each aspire to that actually has some validity you know um as david was talking about anthropos um the the divine intention for humanity was one of extraordinary luminous vision you know what what we were meant to become as the uh, uh, let's call it the experiment of of the unseen the spiritual the 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 essence of life in form and incarnated uh and i think that's the royal stream that we're meant to be on this planet enlightened and and functional on a garden planet uh rather than you know sort of abandoned in the chaos of of the world <laughs> as it seems to be at this moment so what's the what's the plan for uh, a couple, a couple that live in Kansas and and are deciding they want to get married, and what what do you suggest to them? And of course, everyone else on the planet. How do how do you go about the process of of getting married and thinking about what's important, happy happily ever after, or what are some of the other things that are more important in developing what you consider? the relationship and i like the way and even the artwork in the in the book where there's uh, a male and a female and then there's another uh figure there and that figure is the essence of what they created as a relationship right mm, right right so right how do, so how do we help people there's so many uh, dynamics in relationship, and I'm I'm going to make a couple assumptions because I think so much of whether and how one's relationship functions depends on intention, on choice, uh, on beliefs. So let's say that a couple um, it does have some kind of spiritual perspective to their lives. That could be anything. It can be religious. It can be um, non-religious, but connected to uh, vitality and high values. It doesn't, you know, I, I don't limit what's sacred to people. But I think having a sacred tone that's shared by a couple is essential. And that can be the love of nature. It can be a religion. Like I say, I don't think that that's as much a concern as the fact that they identify it, and that becomes partly that third figure. It becomes then that the relationship becomes the vessel. So in the picture, there's sort of shipwrecks, because all of us, whether they've been our own or our parents or people that we know, we've seen the shipwrecks. Um, and they've ruined lives. They, they can ruin the lives of children, you know, to have these shipwrecks and suddenly a loving couple becomes, you know, terribly uh, vengeful and spiteful and destructive of each other because they're divorcing. So the strewn shipwrecks in our lives are something that have impacted us all. Um, so how do we learn from that? And rather than those being tragedies, how do, how do we recognize that a relationship in, in that section of, of the book we, and in the article, in the Slow Counseling book, we kind of make a bold statement that needs a little explaining, but we sort of like the shock value of it, which is that relationships are not for happiness, relationships are, are to grow one another and happiness can be an outcome 
But if we focus on happiness, there can be a tendency to think, well, if I'm not happy in this relationship, then it's a failure. And I don't think that that's the mark of the the value and the discernment of if your relationship is working. It's more like, are you awake to that spiritual perspective that you've chosen and agreed on? And are you learning from one another? And do you have a set of tools that help you work it out because happiness there's no happily ever after without a really comprehensive toolkit and a toolkit that you can learn to rely on the tools when there's storms at sea and when you go careening into rocks or get grounded on a sandbar you know what are you going to do because those things do happen it's not that they they won't happen it's that they happen and then you know how to get through them we're going to talk about uh, one of your tools in a minute, but I, I want to get back to David uh, and ask a little more about the book. We started to ask, and then I just got so totally transfixed and wanted to speak to Leela. You can understand that, right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, getting back to the book, what, what made you decide to choose to write this book? And And also, I want to know about how you chose the people that would be in it. What Set us up on what the book is about and, and the creation of it. Uh, I, having been trained in psychology, I really have seen the trend towards what they call brief psychotherapy or no psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, sometimes actually read out of a manual, like if you get your thoughts straight, you'll be fine, send you home, <laughs> and also towards uh, medical interventions, uh, give, send you home with a vial of um, pills. So I, th- those are definitely trends happening in our time, not everywhere, but especially in the United States, yes, and to in Western cultures to a degree. Well, yeah. actually, world round. Actually, think about it, yeah. and um, so to see actually the embarrassment that people experience talking about soul and spirit, and the the skeptics who are um, I, skepticism is great, but if it's science, if it's scientific, which means oriented towards experience, and what are people actually experiencing? So I could go down that line, but I'm not going to. What it, it caused me to want to uh, do this book, The Counselor, as if soul and spirit matter. And that was the previous book that we talked about. Correct. To guide professionals, um, actually, um, but professional would be professional police officers, lawyers, as well as psychologists, addiction counselors, etc. Then this one came up because I was aware of so many interesting stories that people from all walks of life, and, and I wanted to gather them. Some of them are professional psychologists in the slow counseling book. Some of them are, um, there's a physiotherapist there who has a great story about how he was dealing with, how he deals with people, how he works with people. Young physiotherapists now are trained to, someone comes in, oftentimes you don't even touch them. They come in, they describe their problem, you give them a few exercises, pieces of paper, send them home. Whereas this fellow that's written in this book was trained in England and is very, um, kinesthetic. He touches you. And that is so 
powerful that level of relationship from one human being to another has such a healing effect. So that's one of the people in there. Um, one person who deals with young youngsters, uh, adolescent males primarily, Gabriel Cannon, he, that, and also a woman named uh, Beatrice Birch, who runs a detox unit for uh, for medical, prescribed medical, not recreational or illegal, but prescribed medical drugs people get on anti-anxiety drugs or anti-psychotics or antidepressants, and uh, they get hooked and the drugs are no longer working, so they come to her residential treatment in uh, Vermont. She wrote a great chapter in there. Um, so I wanted a variety of people because counseling is not just meant to be people who hold a license saying, I'm a counselor. Mm-hmm. Everybody is a counselor. Right. But that was and to bring together their stories, and, uh, I, and I, I loved that. So going pro- from professional to uh, anecdotal, and uh, the mix, is, the mix is, is great. I'm, so it's a little gem of a book. It's not a big book, but it's a little little gem of a book. It is. It is. That's a great word for it. It is actually a gem of a book. <laughs> uh, and uh, the reason I think it's a gem of a book, usually if you go to a bookstore, I don't know if anyone even goes to bookstores too much anymore, which is sad for me, but I guess it's part of the world. Uh, maybe if we slow down, we'll open up bookstores again. That could be interesting. Uh, <laughs> I digress. Uh, but when, you know, you go and you buy uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, you open the book, you read all the words, and you go through the voyage and everything. But in this book, you've got not only little uh, vignettes and, and stories, but you also have conversations that you have with some of the people. And there's also some interesting photo- photography to look at, some artwork, and uh there's even poetry in there, and in a little while, I'm going to hopefully ask you if you would be kind enough to read a poem to us, but I want to ask a different question first. In physical medicine, we have what we call vital signs, where people know you could take, if you're not feeling well, you could take your temperature, you take your pulse, breathing, a few other things. If you go to the doctors, they could take a few more vital signs, and that's kind of when you know you're sick and you need to get help. Are there mental vital signs that people can use to say, whoa, this is happening to me, I, maybe I need to go get some counseling? Or that a family member re- may see in someone else. You know, the mother takes the temperature of the child who's saying, I don't feel well, and they see it's 103, and they say, okay, that you are sick, and we've got to do something. Are there mental vital signs we can look for that we never talk about? Whoa, that's a great one. Yay. We require relationships to even exist. Relationships are necessary. We have we, we needed a father and a mother at conception. After birth, it needed a mother plus caretakers. Could have been the father, could have been others. We needed we need these relationships to even be here, to even exist. And though most people I find think of themselves as adults and don't and think, well, sort of uh, here I am as an adult and they forget their past, even to ponder the past is really helpful. And to and if, if the past had been failing in some way at conception, in gestation, at birth, 
or after birth, if they had been failing in some way, you wouldn't be here. You may have things to complain about, <laughs> but you wouldn't be here. So, to we actually, relationships are necessary, and all along the way, although we may concentrate on or remember the, the bully or the difficulties we had in some place or another along the story, along the path of our lives, there were always underlying positivity that was occurring for you. Where you learn if you're in need of counseling, well, all right, here's the truth. Everybody's in need of counseling <laughs> because that is a form of relationship. That's what people do to each other. Now, friends are different, have a different role than mentors or professionals. They all have different roles to play with you. If you note that your relationships are suffering, if they are feeling unsatisfactory, if you feel that you are alone in your life, which means the relationships have dropped away, these are signs that you may need to reach out. And that's a, that can be, if you really get into an alone place, that can be a, a hard turnaround to turn around and say, I, I need help. I need to engage a relationship some people join clubs for that reason. Mm -hmm. Some people join AA for that reason. Some people, so there are lots of reasons, but, but know that finding your relationships through social media, through the movies, is, is not going to work. It, is a, it does actually function as a stopgap measure, but it's not, it doesn't bring forward the warm, flows that come from the heart, which are the natural method for human beings. So, the, the, it, it, I can't give you a number, 103 degrees, 101. Right. Uh, people at 98.6 require relationships and can find themselves in, an, in a place where they, where they need. Um, what happens with Leela, Leela and myself? People come to us for advice. Oftentimes, it's advice about, okay, I'm trying to find my twin flame, or I'm trying to find a relationship of some kind, and it's the, the world is not bringing me the promised twin flame or soulmate. Mm -hmm. um, it's likely because, and then some of these people want to go do, into ascension and to try to figure out some way of kind of checking out. And um, the, uh, we recommend against that, because here's the school. You're in school here on this earth. And to f the way you learn, is the way you progress, is through bumping up against other people, flowing heart flows with them. And to start is with your own being, and even simple things such as the, the checkout clerk at the grocery store. How are you dealing with that person? Or the person who's just picking up your trash at the back of your house? Or the post office employee or whatever? How are you with that person? I'm not suggesting gushy. I am suggesting let the heart flow move out and engage with that person. They are another human being with a story. And you will, you will be able to put the thermometer to your own, using this thermometer metaphor that you're using, you'll be able to put the thermometer to your own emotional mental state by observing your, the quality of relationships you have with other people. 
That's where the slow comes in. We need to all add slow into our lives. More stimulation is not helpful. So, David, I, I have a question for you and Leela. I, I don't know oh, who's... Oh, Christina! I, I'm here! <laughs> it takes me a little while. I'm here! I really am! I've come back down from the universe. <laughs> um, what happens in a situation that I have uh, seen and, and run into with some clients as well, where they... It's uh, relationships that they avoid. So they build other relationships outside um, to nurture that part of them, but they're not um, a close relationship. I don't know if that's a good word to use, but um, it's almost like one chooses to to be very social and build all these other relationships. And I don't want to say it's like a facade, but a way of running away from what hurt them or what is difficult for them to look at at that stage and that that present moment, which that present moment can last for years and it's so deep. And they just choose not to even go slow with that relationship, but to um, not know if it's a severing or if they should return to it? Does yeah. that make sense? So, yes, and I'm, you're describing a situation that everybody listening will nod, yes, I understand that I have been there or I am there right now in some place in my life. That's when you're shutting people off to, to some degree. Mm-hmm. That's... Yeah. Yeah. So look at it this way. Um, so often is spiritual teachers promise that we will come into the light and enlightenment and, and yet we're in school. This is the school. This is the opportunity. There aren't other planets that we can jump to. This is the planet. And this, these are the opportunities right in front of us. And painful as those may be, that pain is only a thin veneer of, of horror, but it's thin, keeping us from getting that flow going back again with humanity. What do you think, Leela? <laughs> I think that um, you're touching on what, when, when I was listening to Christina, for me it was... The dark places, right? Mm-hmm. The dark places that um, that we carry in the psyche that other relationships have brought us to seeing or feeling. We've uh, David and I have been establishing the the phrase illuminated relationships, partly to appropriately bring light into some of those dark places, because that's that is what the opportunity on this planet seems to be about. So whether a person chooses to go into or when they choose to go into that darker place, which is when I think trained counseling or psychotherapy becomes the appropriate uh, next step, because that, that deeper dive you know, into some of those caverns is where some of the greatest wounding can be. Um, 
whether a person comes across the stage of your life who's the character that's going to trigger that wounding or even look like they've caused that wounding, my, my, my personal perspective is way more often than not, those very painful experiences in a relationship are triggering something that we actually maybe came in with as baggage or that that's part of the nugget that we're meant to, you know, mine. And in mining it, we look deep uh, and, and that those characters come across the stage in order that we can start to deal with it. And sometimes it's too much. So when you talk about sort of building the, you know, the barrier to um, defend against that, there's times when that is appropriate because you have to have the inner strength to go in some of those mining expeditions into the dark. And yet, illuminated relationship for us is about gradually being able to bring light into some of that subterranean territory because that's where essentially where some of our power rests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me, it's almost like a spelunking hero's journey, you know, or heroine's <laughs> journey to, to kind of get down in there and, and not be, not feel like our life is being threatened, but actually to be in touch with our deep luminous source point mm. so that we actually know we can go into that dive. Um, and yeah, I don't. I don't know if that really addresses your. You're asking a really kind of a deep question around our both social persona as well as the deep question of why are we here really? Is it to be successful and famous and have more money? Uh, is it to be social and you know uh, you know well thought of by the world, or, or is there really a deeper note to strike? You know, and I think right now we're at a time in our country. Speaking of the U.S., we think of Australia as our country as well, but we're at a time on the planet, you know, looking at all the nationalism that's going on, mm -hmm. where we need to really start deepening that question. You know, really, why are we here? And, and what are we involved in that actually benefits life, um, mm -hmm. rather than some of the narcissistic tendencies that are starting to become a household world, word now? What is narcissism and so how, how is narcissism? narcissism ruling the world mm. could i add one more piece please um leela and i uh wrote a book called conscious wedding handbook <laughs> beautiful um and uh to give very detailed recommendations for how to make a wedding as conscious as possible Part of what you're describing, Christina, has we we encounter with people who have been married for some years. We recommend actually a quick divorce and a remarriage every seven years. <laughs> we we talk about we talk about divorce, how to do that consciously, and then also rededication because you're different. Mm -hmm. If your life's working, you're different. And so after seven years, after ten years, if things have gone sour or stale or whatever time to have a rededication, mm. which requires some self-knowledge and some communication. Mm, that's a big word these days, communication. I think that that beautifully segues into uh, the next part or the next question I have, although I wanted to take a moment to uh, honor Leonard Cohen and one of his <sighs> lyrics that's one of my favorites is, there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. Mm -hmm. I like it's in. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, love that. And I love that. Uh, Leela, 
we were talking earlier about having a toolbox, and David just mentioned, and we both just mentioned, communication. You have a technique that you call heart talk. Tell us about that. Um, I first learned heart talk, gosh, in California in the 70s um, in various workshops along the way. And the person I learned it from was Jack Canfield, though I believe that it pre-existed his teaching of it. Um, so heart talk is something that, that many people will recognize aspects of it in the, uh, a talking stick ritual, which is uh, something people do it. more and more. Right. Mm-hmm. And heart, heart talk is, it was really um, dedicated to, you know, between two people, like the, the heart to heart, sit down and have a heart to heart talk. Um, and it, and the tools of it are, are very, very simple. And David and I uh, have promoted our version um, of, of heart talk uh, in many of the things we've written, because it's really where communication begins. And while we are here having a heartfelt and a mindful uh, conversation. A lot of times when people are in, uh, using the relationship metaphor, when they're in treacherous waters, um, sometimes the uh, container of sacred space can help calm the waters and create communication. So if people are feeling reactive and there's a lot of interrupting going on or it's escalating into an argument, um, a hard talk can be one way of saying, whoa, hold on, let's pull out this agreement we made uh, prior and use this tool. So the very simple uh, outlines of a hard talk are that you agree to do it and that you agree to follow the, the uh, instructions to creating it being a successful hard talk, um, which basically means to establish a different kind of time and space with some guidelines that include one person speaks at a time and holds the uh, the sacred piece. It could, you know, it can be a flower. It can be a, you know, it can be anything that you choose. And as long as I'm holding it, I'm I'm able to speak from my heart, and I'm not being interrupted by the other person. Um, and I speak in I statements. I'm talking about my experience, how I'm feeling. I'm not telling the other person everything they did that was wrong or annoying or irritating. I can say I'm experiencing some irritation and I'm working with it the best I can. And the experience I'm having is blah, blah, blah. So when I'm ready and I don't go on and on and on and on, I, I sort of go in small bits and I lay the talking piece down, the heart piece down and give a moment of silence so that there is silence in the conversation. It slows down the conversation. At whatever point, the other person picks it up, can respond or not directly. So it's different than a conversation where you feel like you want to go back and forth in real time. And you're just exploring what wants to be said and what wants to be heard. And the job of the listener is to deeply listen and not be planning what they're going to say next and not be countering the argument, but just to rest back in themselves, to really open up their heart. So to use the heartfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness words, to really listen with heart and mind and balance and empathy and 
with the intention to really hear what's going on, understand where the conflict or misunderstanding might be, say what needs to be said, hear what needs to be heard, and and allow for an opening in the communication to occur. So that's the, the brief outline of it. And boy, it can be just such an important distinction, especially when normally people react, interrupt, and you know, fight to be heard. So it, as a tool, I just mentioned that the agreement needs to be in place on how to use the tool. And one of the best ways to practice it is when you're not reactive and you get the tool down and you can explore an interesting topic, like what do you remember about Valentine's Days from years past? Or is there something about your relationship with your grandparents that you want to share with one another. So pick a topic that's pretty neutral but interesting and explore the tool that way so that when in a period of crisis it emerges, it can be relied on to be a tool. It would, it would seem to me that, you know, we're watching as you brought up television, uh, as you brought up the world happenings right now, uh, we see different uh, representatives from different countries meeting and talking. And I just wonder if when one of them is talking, the other is sort of thinking, you know, how am I going to answer this, rather than the sit down and taking this to an another place. I love that. Thank you, Leela. That was great. It was a great tool. And I think it's something that not just, well, we talk about everybody has relationships and maybe we're not going to be able to carry the uh, flowers around with us everywhere and hand it to the grocery <laughs> clerk but it's still uh it's still a good concept um so thank you for that i, so Glenn, I love that go ahead david uh yeah the um I'm, i'd like to refer to a study which was a a meta study a combination of many many studies which relates to what we're talking about. People come in with a, um, with a complaint, and it can be psychomedical mm -hmm. combination, mm -hmm. psychophysical. Uh, and this, this study was by Lam a guy named Lambert, in first version 1986, second version 2013, because he, he did it again. And he found out that in the cure, 40% of the change for the better in the client had to do with client, uh, what they call client factors. It has, has to do with age, socioeconomic, ethnicity, so client factors, uh, previous, previous health issues, 40% of, of the change for the better. 15% uh, had to do with whether the client felt hopeful or pessimistic. There's a whole there's a whole study about what are the presuppositions or the expectations of the client as they come in. 15%. 15% had to do with what were the psychological and medical techniques used, and 30% had to do with the quality of the relationship with the caregiver. There you go. I love that. Uh, and it would make sense, you know, when you really think about it. All of those are certainly important parts, but I think... That's a, a very important part in it. And I always thought that one of the great things about being a physician was I, I think touch is a very important part of healing. And as a physician, especially in the emergency department, I always had the ability to take someone's pulse and they accepted that. 
and most of the time I would leave my hand there for a long time so that we would start developing a touch relationship uh, in part of our communication. But that was uh, always something that I thought helped me developing that moment when I needed to work with someone. David, you took on uh, something pretty important, I think. You took on um, a, a traditional Zen Buddhist concept of the uh, sage, the patriarch, pointing to the moon as a lesson uh, to the student. And you wrote a poem about that. So I thought that was pretty brave of you. And I wonder if you would read that poem to us now. Do you want to speak anything about the uh, the tradition there, or should we just let the poem do it? Because most people will recognize that. I th- I think you know there's so much to the tradition. You know, is it do people uh, they're looking at the finger rather than what the moon is about? Sometimes the finger represents yeah. words, and the moon represents truth. Sometimes it's going beyond all of that. There's a lot, but I think that you cover it in your poem. Okay, good. Uh, I do want to add one thing. The word some is actually, I just noticed this, the word, the verb in the first line is some, as in summary. It, some, as in summa cum laude, means you're at the top. That's because the Romans summed their figures, a column of figures, and the summary, the sum was at the top. We typically do it at the bottom, but the Romans did it at the top. So the summary of the whole column of figures is at the top. Mm-hmm. So that vertical orientation is I- implied here, but only if you know that etymology. So, gosh, that was difficult introduction. Here we go. The ancient teacher sums the teaching by pointing a finger to the moon. Beware, beware, the finger is a trick. You see the finger, so strong and certain, so strongly upright before your gaze. Now leave the finger, its unity, its power, and follow its pointing up to the sky. Go all the way to the light of the moon and find then there the secret revealed. This is the old story. It ends there, but it doesn't end there. The moon's bright radiance comes from somewhere. Now follow this pointing to the fire of the sun. In blazes of wood, that claim our wonder, they point to the sun, the mother of wood, the mother of warmth, the mother of flame. Electric lights that dazzle our eyes, whose power comes from distant factories, they point to the sun, the source of light, the mother of plants, the source of fuel. Don't stop there. Keep going. The light of the sun, from where does it come? To what To what do stars point as their common source? You have to follow the starry fingers. They point to a place up there, out there, unseen origin, though felt by some. The center of the galaxy, that's it. The source, the cause, the center, out there. Don't stop. Keep going. To where, oh where, do the galaxies point? Go further and further, out and out. Periphery calls as a sphere of infinite measure. Exciting adventure, setting your mind against all that you know. You know in your body, which tells you when asked, now turn the outside in, the inside out. The edge, impossibly distant, now comes impossibly close. 
the edge becomes center. In here. In here. It's all in here. Starfire, heartfire, fire of creation. The source isn't out there anymore. The old gray teacher knew this all along and smiles when you notice the glint in her eyes. Bravo. Thank you. Well done. Mm-hmm. And well First written, traveling too. the universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're coming, we're coming to the end of the show, and we want a health tip from each of you. But before uh, <laughs> we do that, just for a second, was there anything either of you wanted to specifically mention uh, in preparing for this that we didn't talk about? No, I'm good. Well, while while David is thinking about that, Leela, we would love a health from you. I love um, some of the genetic research that comes up when um, epigenetic is referred to as a way that we do have an influence over some of the genetic programming, and that a lot of that influence has its impact around choices that are made, choices to live healthy, choices to eat well and move in a fluid way, uh, having exercise routines or whatever. So for me, the the health tip has to do with um, so much of what David just read. It's like we're so connected um, to universal wisdoms and that we still remain the one that chooses what we do, whether it's relationship um, practices and tools, whether it's uh, a manner of keeping our, our body as temple, how do we celebrate the sacred. So for me, choice, the choices that I make every single day and ultimately many times a day about healthy lifestyle healthy relationship, using my tools, all of it creates a holistic impact on this vessel that I am moving through the universe in currently, which is this body on this planet. So healthy choices. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much for that, David. Uh, Leela's body is beloved by me and everything about her, so that's great. That is, is I'm that, helping is in that. that. That's the health tip. <laughs> it is very much a health tip. Follow the finger. <laughs> yeah. It's a finger pointing at Leela. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, it's important to... What was that, Leela? I didn't. I said, well, say a little more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm squirming on this end. I'm squirming. <laughs> okay, great. She wants me to say more about how I love her. Uh, I'll do that privately. <clears throat> I'll say uh, I love her. Well, I'll say too, I love her too. <laughs> yeah, she, yay. <laughs> yay. Mm-hmm. So. I, Leela and I are involved in this work because 
we we you know we we do workshops we write things and we do videos and various things and th- th- there is a a really important reason that i alluded to earlier and that is that all of us are contributing to this grand being called a the human being in this human project because anthropos has a task to perform a destiny to fulfill with sophia and that is a cosmic aim so to some small degree a couple of you know a quarter of an inch if i can further help further humanity working with leela by a quarter of an inch then that is terrifically important that's why we are so keen on everybody having a positive growthful experience in through relationship connecting to the source of of energy that comes up streams streams from the heart streams in every direction mm. and that the health tip actually i would say is that notion that it's not just me here alone if you begin to feel lonely and all alone then ask in like this show me the fullness of life energy streaming through me and around me and you will begin to get impressions from merely putting that question that's a health tip people don't think to do that you're never alone there there we are surrounded by intelligence and some of it is quite supportive some of it is adversarial and it's all very interested in what we're doing as human beings <laughs> i am grateful to our very special guests david and leela tresimer for sharing their wisdom and experience with all of us today giving us some great poetry and tools and ideas to think about and to move forward in our everyday relationships with everyone. I think it's so important. I'm also thankful to my teachers and my healers for keeping me on my journey and allowing me to be where I am today. Thank you, Christina and Segovia and Yoga Hub and all of our uh, wonderful followers that uh, follow this show. We're, we're so happy to continue uh, presenting people like David and Leela. Look forward to meeting uh, all of you again at another time where we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Thank you so much, David and Leela, and for the rest of you. Until our next meeting, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and of course to both our special guests, David and Leela Tresmer. Uh, man, this was a great show. We really are delighted to have you, and I would like to show our audience your book and encourage you all to look for their wonderful book. And of course, we would like to each and thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath or follow him on Facebook at the Medical Guide, The Medical Guide. We encourage you to connect with David and Leela Tresmer through their website, illuminaterelationships.com, illuminaterelationships.com. And uh, if you've enjoyed this moment on YHTV, you know, we would love it if you could support us by liking us or subscribing to our channel. And again, we 
are always open for your feedback and comments, suggestions. Uh, you can type it into the comment box or just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, namaste. Chronic pain, it turns out, has very little to do and very little correlation with uh, tissue damage. And it has more to do with uh, the brain mishandling the information, uh, either because of some genetic predisposition to pain or some early life predisposition to pain or uh, psychosocial issues. Uh, it's the chronic pain is more associated with brain phenomenon than peripheral phenomenon. Now there are obviously exceptions, and that is. Uh, patient.